Half-Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half-Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half-Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half-Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at The Haunting from 1963. Adapted by Nelson Gidding from the novel by Shirley Jackson and directed by Robert Wise. It's kind of strange that Wise isn't more of a household name because he directed some of the most famous movies in the history of cinema. He didn't make a lot of forays into horror with only this, Curse of the Cat People, The Andromeda Strain, and Audrey Rose in his history. But you might have heard of a couple of sci-fi pictures he did, Star Trek The Motion Picture and The Day the Earth Stood Still, or possibly a couple of his musicals, West Side Story and The Sound of Music, or maybe one or two of the editing jobs he did before he moved into directing, like, say, Citizen Kane. You know, little-known films like that. It was, in fact, West Side Story that he'd just finished up when he was looking for a new project, and after reading a review of Shirley Jackson's latest novel, The Haunting of Hill House, which came out in 1959, he decided to give it a read and was apparently convinced to adapt it when his assistant interrupted him while reading and he physically flinched. In fairness, it is one of the finest novels of supernatural horror ever written, even though it's not really considered to be Jackson's best book. She's just that talented. Wise took the project to MGM, who he still owed one more picture on the back of a large deal he'd made with them, and while the American division of the studio wasn't interested, or at least not interested enough to meet his budgetary requirements, MGM UK agreed to give him just over a million dollars so long as he used a predominantly British cast to get tax credits, despite being set in New England, this couldn't feel more Old English if it had Kenning, and so long as he shot in black and white. This was Wise's preferred style anyway, but it was something of a controversial choice for 1963. By this point, American television was shooting most of its shows in color, and it was beginning to dominate film as well, certainly studio film, definitely, leaving black and white with something of a reputation as old-fashioned. And that's a reputation that only continued to grow in the ensuing decades. Uh, an attempt was made by Ted Turner to colorize this film in the 1980s, but Wise pointed to a clause in his contract that said the movie had to be in black and white and threatened to sue. I can't help but agree with his stance, even though I would love to see a color version of this movie. Color is an aesthetic choice that needs to be introduced during production design, not an after-the-fact decision made by strangers simply in order to make it not black and white. But getting away from the 80s, Wise and Gidding met with Jackson to discuss the production. Apparently she flat-out vetoed Gidding's idea to make the whole thing a hallucination suffered by Eleanor in a mental hospital, which, thank God. And she suggested the shortened title The Haunting when they said The Haunting of Hill House was a little too long to fit on a marquee. As a result of Jackson's involvement, it's a relatively faithful adaptation, albeit condensed greatly for the screen, and with a few minor changes in names and characterization. Uh, in the novel, the psychic researcher is named John Montague instead of John Markway, for example, and his wife is even more interested in the supernatural than he is, but she doesn't see anything during her visit, and the tension comes from him being seemingly proved wrong in Hill House being a haunted house, not in him being proved very, very right. Um, spoilers. 
Speaking of John Markway, we can begin our cast listing with Richard Johnson. His character isn't the protagonist, but he is the cause of the story and the first major character we see. Johnson was one of those fine old British character actors who had 140 roles over his 87-year-long life. This is probably his signature part, but fans of The Last Drive-In will probably also recognize him from The Monster Club and Zombie. The two psychics Markway brings to the house are Eleanor, played by Julie Harris, and Theodora, a.k.a. Theo, played by Claire Bloom. Harris, who is very much the protagonist here, also lived to the age of 87 and spent much of her career as a legendary character actor, mostly doing adaptations of classical works. She was Ophelia in a 1964 production of Hamlet, and Eliza Doolittle in an adaptation of Pygmalion that came out the same year as this movie. And she also has, tucked away in her IMDb history, an uncredited cameo in a little movie from 1985 called Crime Wave, directed by a young man named Samuel Ramey. As we will come to see, that was not coincidence. Whereas Claire Bloom is still alive and still acting. She was Queen Mary in The King's Speech, Hera in the original Clash of the Titans, and possibly even the Doctor's mother in the Doctor Who special The End of Time, depending on your interpretation of that scene, over the course of her long and storied career. All of the leads in this film were really well-established actors before and after this movie. Speaking of, the final lead, Russ Tamblin, who plays Luke, got his start as an actor in movies like The Original Father of the Bride, Peyton Place, and High School Confidential along with West Side Story, which brought him to the attention of Wise for this film. He wasn't originally interested in doing The Haunting, feeling like he was being offered the only underwritten part in an otherwise exceptional screenplay, but this was still the era of the studio system, and he was basically informed that he wouldn't get another part until production was completed on this movie, so it was either do it or sit on his hands and collect unemployment. Suddenly he was able to see all of the interesting aspects of the character. There are also a few interesting minor characters. Mrs. Dudley, the housekeeper, is played by Rosalie Crutchley, who has a career stretching back to the very beginnings of television, and who was a regular in the mystery adaptations that the BBC made into a trend in the 80s and exported wholesale for American public television. She popped up in Poirot, Miss Marple, Campion, and Sherlock Holmes, just to name a few. And her husband, Mr. Dudley the Caretaker, is played by the absolutely iconic Valentine Dial, who was the Black Guardian on Doctor Who, Deep Thought in the original TV adaptation of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and the uncredited voice of Dr. Noah in the original catastrophic adaptation of Casino Royale, just to name a few of his many, many credits. Lois Maxwell, who plays John's wife Grace Markway, was of course the original Miss Moneypenny in every James Bond film from Dr. No all the way up to A View to a Kill as part of another long and storied career, and Faye Compton, who plays Hill House's owner Mrs. Sanderson, was all up and down British film and television for decades. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that Howard Lang, who here plays an uncredited role as Hugh Crane, was also one of the cavemen in the very first Doctor Who story, An Unearthly Child. And before we move from the cast to the story, a brief trigger warning. This is a film that has multiple depictions of death by suicide, and is predominantly about a character whose mental deterioration leads to death by suicide. If you're not feeling comfortable with discussion of these themes, please select another episode to listen to. And if you're struggling with mental health issues yourself, you can always dial 988 to get to a 24-hour crisis lifeline for people in your situation.
And for those of you who've decided to stay around, let's jump in. We begin with a shot of Hill House itself, shrouded in darkness. Wise used infrared film for the exterior shots of Eddington Park, the gothic country manor house that was used to stand in for Hill House in this film, in order to give the clouds and stone walls an eerie, otherworldly look. Dr. John Markway, in voiceover, there is a lot of voiceover in this movie, you're just gonna either need to get used to it or watch a different movie, because it is predominant, says that Hill House had stood for ninety years, and might stand for ninety more. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there, walked alone. Followed by the opening credits, which condense out of mist to form the title card. This is a condensed version of Jackson's famous opening to The Haunting of Hill House, and it's a shame they trimmed it down because the original is so poetic. No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against the hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for eighty years, and might stand for eighty more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone. It's those little extra grace notes about the larks and katydids that make this one of the single most ominous and atmospheric novels in the history of horror, and many consider this single paragraph to be the finest opening paragraph in the history of novels. It tells you instantly that Hill House is alive and awake, and that life and awareness has made it a place that is not sane. It's so beautiful. Coming out of the credits, Markway gives the audience the potted history of the place, which is doled out a bit more judiciously in the book, I think. It gives a little more tension if you hold back some of those details. Hugh Crane built the place as a present for his wife 90 years prior to the story, Incidentally, might stand for 90 more. A house this big and this expensive should stand for a lot more than 180 years. This is something that you should be able to live in for 10 generations of your family. But I digress. Hugh Crane built this place as a present for his wife 90 years prior to the story, but she crashed her carriage on the grounds and died without ever seeing it. Crane then moved in with his daughter Abigail, and there's a strong implication that he was emotionally, if not physically, abusive to her, as only fanatically Christian patriarchs can be. He remarried, but the second wife fell to her death on the grand staircase. I'm 90% sure they borrowed this shot for the end of the stone tape, right down to the position of the falling woman's arms. This is a director's director's movie, filled with absolutely stunning camera work, and many of its best moments have been homaged by its successors. Even in this scene, which is just a woman falling down the stairs, there's a beautiful shot of the entire house seen upside down before it cuts to the wife sightlessly staring face upside down as well. After Hugh died by drowning, Abigail lived in her old nursery, there's something so symbolic about never leaving the nursery, until she was an old woman, another gorgeous shot, it is all from child to adult to elderly invalid, and she was taken care of in her old age by a professional caregiver. These were usually called companions back then, but it was understood that they were essentially nursemaids. 
This particular companion apparently slipped off for a tryst with one of the locals, ignoring her responsibilities and letting the old lady die. Now what she could have done to help is very much up in the air, given that Abigail apparently knocked on the wall a few times and went limp according to what we see. But the point is she wasn't there, and what is a ghost if not a sense of regret about the things we can't change? We later see the companion climbing to the top of a spiral staircase in the library and hanging herself from the balcony just below the entrance to the attic. And this is where you can really start to see some of the cunning camera work that's the hallmark of the film. Normally for movies of the time, cinematographers would use a 38 or 40 millimeter lens, which is very similar to the curvature of the human eye and replicates what we think of as quote-unquote normal vision. But Wise wanted the angles to look a little bit surreal and unnatural, and so he went with an experimental 30mm lens Panavision was testing. They warned him that it had some distortions and would cause odd issues with perspective around the edges of the frame, and he basically said, perfect, just what I wanted. And here it makes the floor seem impossibly distant, and walls loom in from all sides as Abigail's companion makes her fateful climb. I'd say he also uses Dutch angles a lot, but honestly, the way this lens distorts perspective and the way the feet of the companion tumble into the frame before stopping with a dreadful jerk makes me uncertain of what angle genuinely would reflect consensus reality. So much of this movie isn't about the story as it is the way Wise presents the environment of Hill House to our eyes, and if you're just watching it for the events, you're going to miss a lot of what makes this a brilliant movie. Markway, who's been narrating all this in a tone of breathless glee that suggests a touch of callousness about the real human tragedy of the house that we can probably expect to receive some comeuppance over the course of the movie, although not to spoil, but much like the stone tape, it comes in the form of being deprived of the women society very much saw at the time as a man's due, finishes by explaining that the house then passed to Mrs. Sanderson, a distant relative, and we then fade into him talking to Sanderson herself. Unfortunately, this is one of those cases where time and the changing conventions of cinema have made this film feel a little dated. These days, when you have a voiceover and fade in on a conversation, it's assumed that the voiceover represents the speaker talking to the listener. But obviously Sanderson knows the history of the house, so there's no reason for Markway to explain it to her, which makes the whole thing feel a little clunky until we remind ourselves he didn't just say all that out loud to her. Markway is there to rent the house for an experiment. He's a scientist researching the paranormal, and he's going to bring in a team of experts to determine what the scientific basis is for the house's supposedly haunted history. Which is also the plot of the stone tape, and the legend of Hell House, and Poltergeist, and if we list all of the haunted house movies that were inspired by Shirley Jackson's novel and its film adaptation, we'd be here all day. This is a deeply influential film, and Jackson's novel that inspired it even more so, and it's worth remembering that when you watch it, because a lot of early influential movies wind up feeling like they're derivative of the far more familiar material that in fact copied them, because those films were able to refine and pinpoint the things that worked best about the original. This is a The Simpsons Did It First of Haunting films, basically although Jackson herself was inspired by real life. Ever since the 1850s, people have been trying to apply scientific rigor and discipline to supernatural phenomena in order to separate the facts from the legends and attempt to find some kind of measurable, replicable form of psychic energy either among the living or the dead. 
This field was first known as psychical research, which I cannot hear without thinking of the movie The Undead on MST3K and Tom Servo talking about the Institute for Psychical Research Articulation, but later became known as parapsychology. Jackson read actual accounts of parapsychologists visiting haunted houses and making careful notes of everything they experienced, and was absolutely fascinated by the difference between what they thought they were achieving and what was actually happening to them. They thought that their eyewitness testimony became more significant simply because it was being recorded with rigor, even though ultimately nothing they produced was testable or replicable in any scientific sense. Sanderson is at first reluctant to rent the house. She's gotten sick of renting it out to people who cancel after three sleepless nights and then try to get their money back. But as an old woman who's got mortality very much on the brain, she'd like to know if there's life after death if she can find out before the inevitable discovery we all make the hard way. This is also the motive for the man who employs the ghost hunters in The Legend of Hell House, an adaptation of Richard Matheson's novel Hell House, which takes a lot of the premise of this movie, but utilizes a malicious and patriarchal owner of the home as its villain. Honestly, the 1999 adaptation of The Haunting is sort of a melange of both novels, with Hugh Crane becoming a pastiche of Emmerich Belasco. But I digress. Sanderson agrees to the deal, and she's advised by her lawyer, assumedly her lawyer, it's hard to tell, but he's played by Ronald Adam, who has nearly 200 credits in film and television, to send her nephew Luke along both as chaperone, Markway is married and will be accompanied by unmarried women, and to represent the interests of the property owners. Luke stands to inherit the house when Mrs. Sanderson dies. Markway, who looks and acts so much like Timothy Dalton in Hot Fuzz that I have to believe that Edgar Wright did it on purpose as a weird inside joke, gets his lease and tells the old woman that he expects to find maybe only a few loose floorboards. And maybe, I only say maybe, the key to another world. Footnote that for next episode. The sequence of him assembling his team is reduced to a series of names on a chalkboard, most of which were friends and family of Nelson Giddings, and we see that one of them is Eleanor Lance. Eleanor, known as Nell to her family, lives with her sister, although the more accurate term might be couch surfing. She's been sleeping on a couch in the living room for the last 11 years, taking care of her invalid mother while apparently paying rent on top of it all, and now that her mother's died, she sees this invitation to Hill House as an opportunity to make a clean break with the past. Could her mother have died knocking on the wall while Nell didn't hear her? We may find out something along those lines. But Nell only owns half a share in the family car, and there's a clear implication that she's been so beaten down, first by her mother and then by her sister, that they expect her to simply back down when they tell her she's too anxious to drive herself. Surprisingly, it's her brother-in-law who stands up for her, saying she does at least need a vacation after spending 11 years at the beck and call of a mean old woman, but he's quickly shushed by his wife, and it's clear that Nell's sister Carrie is passive-aggressive to a cruel extreme. But one of her comments, how do I know you'll bring it back in good condition, is definitely a Chekhov's car condition concern. She's played by Diane Clare, by the way, with her husband being played by Paul Maxwell and their nasty little kid being played by Verena Greenlaw. But Nell goes to the parking garage anyway, and shows a driver's license from the same house as Carrie Fredericks and tells the attendant she has permission to drive it. 
She then drives off to Hill House without telling anyone where she's gone and with all her belongings packed, essentially committing Grand Theft Auto and going to start a new life. A lot of this is relayed in echoey voiceover. Again, it, there's a lot of voiceover in this movie. It's a common method in older films for depicting a character's inner narrative, but it's fallen greatly out of favor as movies found ways to depict information more visually and leave behind the slightly clunky and literal description of thoughts straight out of the novel they adapted. It does feel a little hokey here, reminiscent of old-timey radio shows, but given that Nell is a woman with such a rich inner life, I'm not sure that there's any real way you could fully evoke the importance of her impulsive decision to steal a car and drive off to hang out with a bunch of total strangers. And at least it's used consistently throughout the film, it's not something that pops up once and then goes away. As she drives, Eleanor imagines her new post-mother and post-sister life, spotting a pair of stone lions on either side of a private driveway she passes and adding them to the home she daydreams of for herself. It's telling that she doesn't seem worried about getting back to a job or about income, and while it's implied at least a little that Eleanor's a bit naive about the outside world due to her prolonged period of confinement with her mother, she's also been paying rent, so presumably she at least got a stipend for her caregiver role and possibly also an inheritance. Both Hill House and Jackson's other famous work, We Have Always Lived in the Castle, revolve around people who've lived lives of isolation and confinement. Jackson herself was agoraphobic and spent a lot of the time both housebound and with her finances tightly controlled by someone else even though she earned the majority of the money for the family, and she put those themes into her work. When Eleanor arrives at Hill House, though, she finds locked gates and a caretaker who's decidedly hostile to her even though he's apparently been notified that people are coming. Dial, who here plays Mr. Dudley, seems to be the only person who got the memo that he's supposed to be from New England and at least puts on a passable effort at a main accent. Eleanor gets defensive and tense at even this minor setback. One of the prevailing themes of the character is that she's very quick to assume the worst about people's attitudes towards her, jumping to the conclusion that they secretly hate her and are only pretending to like her to be polite. It sounds like she might have complex PTSD brought about by a lifetime of dealing with an emotionally abusive family, and of course, in 1963, the stigma around mental health conversations in general would have been so great that she could never have sought treatment for it, even if they knew what complex PTSD was at the time, which they very much did not. Eventually, the caretaker does let her in, laughing off Eleanor's threat to get him fired. Apparently, no one else but the Dudleys will come even in the daytime. And we soon find out, when Eleanor drives up the private road and enters Hill House, that the Dudleys do not stick around at night. Or as Mrs. Dudley, the housekeeper, puts it, I set dinner on the dining room sideboard at six. I clear up in the morning. I have breakfast for you at nine. I don't wait on people. I don't stay after I set out the dinner. Not after it begins to get dark. I leave before the dark. We live over in town, miles away so there won't be anyone around if you need help. We couldn't hear you in the night. No one could. No one lives any nearer than town. No one will come any nearer than that in the night, in the dark. Followed by a wide, unnerving smile that makes it clear that she knows exactly what effect the speech has on people. It is a sublime, triumphant moment that veers right up to the edge of camp, brushes against it, and then dips away, leaving you smiling and terrified at the same time. 
Eleanor feels the sinister and oppressive atmosphere of the house almost immediately. We've been tipped off that at least part of the reason her sister doesn't want her leaving is because she's afraid Eleanor might cause some kind of spectacle with her psychic abilities, and she's very sensitive to whatever haunting is occurring in Hill House. So it's safe to say she's relieved when she hears activity in the Jack and Jill bathroom connecting her bedroom to another. A Jack and Jill bathroom is a bathroom with two doors placed in between two bedrooms. Not that this is vitally important to the movie, but I do tend to notice architectural details a lot, and there may be some symbolism to be found in it. The other person turns out to be Theodora, aka Theo, who keeps interrupting Mrs. Dudley's attempts to replicate her earlier speech and who dresses in a very mod fashion for the time. Her costume was designed by Mary Quant, the mod fashion designer and one of the women who took credit for the invention of the miniskirt. Oh, and speaking of interruptions, you'll notice a lot of overlapping and interrupted dialogue in this movie. A decade or so later, and it was a commonplace technique to create naturalism, Robert Altman loved to use it, but in 1963 it would have been rare and unsettling. Film critic Pauline Kael commented that audiences of the time were not just bored but actively hostile to the film, and I think that the aggressive camera angles and deliberately off-putting dialogue had to be part of the reason why. Theo quickly deduces that Eleanor goes by Nell and that she's brought a whole new wardrobe she bought just for this trip, and we get a very strong sense that she's picking up these details through extrasensory perception. Neither women's abilities are ever spelled out precisely, but it's suggested that Eleanor has the gift of psychokinesis, and Theo is a psychometrist who reads people by touching them. There's also another strong sense, although it's never explicitly stated, Theo is canonically lesbian in all versions of this story, and she's unquestionably flirting with Eleanor. And given that she's got supernatural knowledge backing it up, we can assume she at least thinks she's got something of a chance. Once they've unpacked, the two head to the main hall to await Markway, but the spatial geography of the house is disorienting, causing them to get lost. It doesn't help that the doors sometimes stick or close themselves, but the strong implication is that it's the house itself that causes perceptions to confuse and distort. Again, it's all aided by this literal distortion of the background due to the anamorphic lenses that cause all of the shots to have more depth of field than they realistically should. It's a subtle effect, not obviously fish-eyed, but it's omnipresent. But just as the atmosphere is beginning to seriously get to Eleanor, and Theo gets the unmistakable sense that the house is somehow after her new friend, Dr. Markway opens the door onto the main hall and welcomes them into the parlor. It's in some ways reminiscent of Val Luton's classic movie Cat People, which also made a virtue out of poverty by cutting together expertly edited sequences of suspense that lead the viewer to imagine more than is really happening. Wise was a protege of Luton's, having directed the sequel to Cat People, and he saw this movie very much as an homage to that style of subtle and imaginative horror. I think your feelings on Luton will probably predict your feelings on The Haunting, and probably vice versa. The trio heads into the main hall, which is... I'll admit, while I'm generally a fan of black and white every bit as much as I am of color, I don't think this movie really takes advantage of the format. Black and white, to me, is about those high-contrast interplays of light and shadow, forming really stark and vivid chiaroscuro portraits that bring key elements into sharp relief and the haunting tends more towards a lot of very similar grays that blend together a little too much to my eye. 
It's especially noticeable in this scene where Markway's suit almost accidentally blends into the walls and makes him feel like a very boring person even as he's giving his best supernatural mansplanation. Markway gives a little more potted history of the house. He says there aren't any square corners in the place, which adds to the sense of disorientation, and it's a shame that the production designers didn't quite seem to get that memo. Speaking of, there's a wacky gag where Markway tells the women folk he's studied a map and knows his way around only to walk into a broom closet. There is a lot of sexism in this movie, some of which is, I think, an intentional character choice about Markway, and some of which is the background radiation of existing in 1963. It's hard to tell exactly which is which. After that little mishap with the broom closet, though, they go into the dining room, where we first meet Luke making martinis for the group and establishing his two primary characteristics. One, he doesn't take any of this especially seriously, and two, he's well on his way to becoming a functioning alcoholic. And here's a place for another admission of mine. I don't think Russ Tamblin works especially well in this movie. Not to blame his acting, but I think he looks too young for this part. His youthful features, combined with the unfortunate decision to put him into a costume best described as British schoolboy chic, makes him look like he should still be drinking chocolate milk instead of alcohol. And his delivery is very working class and laddish, lots of dolls and sisters, and slang that feels more Bowery Boy than Trust Fund Brat. None of it quite coheres into a unified aesthetic, and it certainly doesn't cohere into the aesthetic the film is describing with its narrative. I feel like they needed to cast about five, maybe even ten years older for this to click, and perhaps give all the dialogue an extra polish so it sounded more like a dissolute minor Kennedy instead of a sneering minor character from, well, from West Side Story. Once they're all assembled, Markway tells them that they're the only ones who are going to be staying in Hill House. The other people he selected for the experiment all dropped out at the last moment, which says something about either their research skills or their psychic talents. Nonetheless, the group toasts to their hopes of success, although Eleanor does not drink, and tucks into a salmon dinner that was laid out for them before Mrs. Dudley departed for the evening. Markway then explains that Theo and Eleanor were chosen for their connection to the supernatural. Theo was able to consistently guess cards hidden from her view, probably Zaner cards, which were already famous in 1963 due to the sheer number of psychics who tested with them. In real life, being able to guess 19 out of 20, as Markway claims, would probably have a lot of people triple-checking the methodology, as usually folks who do very well on Zaner experiments in the real world are cheating. And Eleanor... Well, Eleanor insists that nothing happened to her, even as Markway describes a rain of stones that fell on her house for three days when she was ten. Just when Markway gives up on pressing the issue and changes the topic to the possible causes of haunting in general, and just when you begin thinking that maybe Eleanor has some kind of issues with repressed memory and doesn't recall what happened when she was ten, she suddenly blurts out that it was the neighbors who threw the stones and she had nothing to do with it which immediately sounds fishy, even though there's never any actual point in the film where she exhibits psychokinesis. Or is there? One of the common interpretations of the film, and for that matter the book, is that Eleanor is at least partially responsible for the phenomena that occur during her time at Hill House. Either she's doing it herself and the hauntings are all the results of her neuroses manifesting physically, which only furthers her stress and intensifies her troubled psychological state, or the house has her under its spell and is using her like a puppet on a string to enact the strange events we'll see later. 
Gidding preferred the former, Jackson was far more in the latter camp, and she left it intentionally ambiguous as to whether or not Eleanor did anything, but the film resists easy answers. After dinner, and I should mention that the slight distortion of the camera makes the walls of the dining room feel like they're about to close in, an effect emphasized by Wise's choice of unconventional camera angles, he always shoots high or low, forcing us to either look up at the characters or look down at them, and I really want to reinforce how much this intensifies the ominous atmosphere of the movie because Raimi basically took this idea of POV as threat and ran with it his entire career. The group retires to the parlor where Theo rooks Luke at Jin with her ESP. But Eleanor still feels the ominous presence of the house, and when Luke scoffs at the whole notion, Markway warns him that a closed mind is more likely to break than bend when confronted with the supernatural. Which does happen, but not to Luke. Spoilers. They all retire to bed, with Markway giving everyone reports to file nightly regarding their experiences, this is the influence of the research Jackson read about when writing the novel, and Theo inviting Eleanor to come to her room if she gets scared, which even in 1963 under the Hayes Code was as obvious an invitation as it is now. But as it turns out, when Eleanor does come to Theo's room, it's legitimately because she is terrified, because this is one of the genuinely iconic scare sequences of the movie. It begins with Eleanor waking in the middle of the night, thinking her mother is rapping on the wall for her. But when she realizes it's actually a loud clomping noise, like the footsteps of a giant passing just outside, she goes into Theo's room. The two of them clutch each other as the sounds get louder and the air becomes unnaturally cold. Wise played these noises on set in order to get more convincing reactions. And this is really a masterclass in suspense. So many brilliant uses of strange camera angles, rapid zooms and pans, and inventive ways to make an ordinary room seem like something weird and unholy. It's no wonder that Theo and Eleanor wind up clutching each other in terror by the time Markway and Luke arrive to investigate. They have a story of their own to share. Both men thought they spotted a dog somewhere inside the house that led them on a wild chase before vanishing. They didn't hear the same noises Eleanor and Theo did, and both women lapse into wild fits of laughter at the notion that they went through all that terror and nobody even noticed. Incidentally, Luke in this scene describes Eleanor as Bridie Murphy, a famous case of past-life regression that would have been very much in the news when Jackson wrote The Haunting of Hill House. But even in this scene, when we're winding down the tension, Wise keeps the unsettling camera work going with several shots of mirrors reflecting the characters and mirrors reflecting mirrors. That's no easy task when you're trying to make sure the camera crew doesn't show up. The next morning, Eleanor dresses a little bit fancier and fresher to have breakfast with John, and either he's happy to flirt back with her or he's just a naturally friendly man who doesn't realize how that attitude might come off to a woman who hasn't had much in the way of affection. Despite her fear from the night before, she feels exhilarated by the chance to have real friends and do something exciting, and she's already dreading the thought of being forced to leave to a degree that almost makes it a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more nervous she acts, the more the others worry about her mental state and suggest she might be better off at home, not realizing that home is pretty much exactly how she got like this. The two of them open up to each other a little, and Markway mentions that he got interested in ghosts as a way of rebelling against his studiously skeptical father. He got into anthropology as a practical way of studying beliefs about the afterlife, but remained mostly interested in proving the truth behind those myths. 
Mind you, I'm not sure that I buy his anthropological knowledge either, given that at one point during this scene he claims that ancient humans would have dropped dead of a heart attack at the sight of an eclipse, which citation very much needed, sir. Theo shows up, and is ostensibly upset with Markway over last night's scare, but it's worth remembering that she's been reading people with ESP this entire movie and she's got an obvious thing for Eleanor. It's entirely in keeping with her character to believe that she walked in, picked up on the vibe between the two, and immediately got annoyed with Markway for poaching her gal. Especially because he is a married man, and if he's wearing a wedding ring, I couldn't spot it. Luke comes in next and breaks the news to the others that all over the wall outside, from about chest height to nearly the ceiling, someone or something has written, Help Eleanor Come Home, in looping, punctuation-free scrawls of chalk. Or as Markway smugly puts it, something like chalk. I feel like it would be very exhausting to spend any length of time with Markway. I have my own podcast, and I'm not as much in love with the sound of my own voice as he is. Now the interesting thing about that sentence is that it takes on very different meanings depending on where you place the commas. Without any, it becomes an instruction to the group, help Eleanor come home, which they spend much of the third act trying to do. Adding a comma before and after Eleanor, though, changes it to help Eleanor come home, an instruction by the house to Eleanor directly to give in to the spell that the house is weaving around her and die, so this can become her new home and her one of the ghosts within it. Or, you know, maybe Theo wrote it and the comma is right before home and she's inviting the house to a threesome. We can't rule it out. Eleanor is deeply shocked and upset, immediately accusing the others of writing it as a mean-spirited prank despite the fact that it's impossible without a ladder or psychokinetic powers. Theo needles her back, suggesting Eleanor wrote it herself to get attention, but when Nell gets good and mad, Theo reveals she was just trying to break her out of her increasingly deep panic. Which is curious, because Theo's going to spend a lot of the rest of the movie making similar barbed comments to Eleanor, and many see it as a manifestation of jealousy. Having discovered that Eleanor is straight and interested in Markway, Theo turns on her in a way that only a rejected suitor can. But given this scene, and given how overtly Eleanor is treated as the apex of a love triangle, well, a love pyramid because you've also got the house involved, and not as a straight woman who's mistaken for a lesbian, I think it's reasonable to suggest an alternative interpretation. Theo's ESP is giving her a lot of insights into Eleanor's character, and she realizes that the only way to help Eleanor at this point is to force her to confront a lot of the things she's been repressing. Not just about her sexuality, although boy howdy is she repressed on that score, but about her buried resentment toward her mother and her anger to her sister and her quiet fury about having 11 years of her life stolen by the role forced on her by her family. Theo needs Eleanor to get mad about these things so she can break out of her shell and become a whole and complete person that the house can't attack so easily. Or she's just a jilted suitor. All interpretations are valid, after all. After breakfast, they take a tour and find a statue in the greenhouse that's supposed to be St. Francis curing the lepers, and supposed to be made of actual stone, as is sometimes the case in older movies, it looks a little too obviously plaster to be truly convincing. Luke has a little fun suggesting an alternate interpretation, with St. Francis standing in for Hugh Crane and the lepers standing in for the victims of the house. Theo remarks that the figure Luke suggested as the companion looks like Eleanor, just in case we haven't gotten that parallel yet, and describes them all as versions of the group themselves. 
The banter leads to Eleanor pretending to dance with Hugh, which is vaguely creepy on its own, but becomes especially uncomfortable in hindsight. They next go to the library, but Eleanor is driven out by a phantom stench that smells exactly like the sick room her mother died in. Because remember, this is where the companion hung herself, and she ignored Abigail Crane's knocking on the wall the night she died. She waits outside while the others go in, and Luke decides to test the spiral staircase the companion climbed the night she hung herself and discovers that it's loose and wobbly. He jumps down a good six feet rather than stay on it as it collapses. And again, the camera placement in all this is marvelous. The shot angled up to the ceiling, and Wise made sure to build ceilings into all the sets, which is normally an extra piece of effort and expense that movie sets don't bother with, just so that he could catch these high-angle and low-angle shots, with the anamorphic lenses ever so slightly distorting distance to make the whole thing look like a vertiginous nightmare, is absolutely brilliant. But the staircase is itself a triumph of special effects. Wise had it specially made with a cable in the central pillar that could be tightened and loosened, so that when taut the whole thing was steady as a rock, and when relaxed it had just enough play to make it look like it was about to fall over at any minute. Apparently he had to demonstrate several plan sequences himself with the cable at full extension before the cast would even go up there. This is a key part of the story, and it's so viscerally believable that you find yourself thinking it couldn't have been safe to shoot on. Eleanor goes out to the balcony while she waits for the others, where she looks at the house, which she now calls vile and hideous. And if I had a single complaint about the haunting, it's that you don't get a real sense of progression and ratcheting tension in regard to Eleanor's increasing obsession with the house, so much as you do a lurching series of jumps between tension and calm and various different emotional states, and she stares up at a window where she imagines what it was like for the woman who fell from it. Which is weird, because the first Mrs. Crane died in a carriage accident on the grounds, the second Mrs. Crane fell down a flight of stairs, Mr. Crane drowned a considerable distance away from the whole place, Abigail died in bed, and the companion hung herself in the library. I have no idea who she's thinking of here. In any event, her train of thought is entirely broken when something seems to zoom directly at her from overhead, almost as though the camera has come to life to menace her, Mr. Samuel Raimi, who watched this sequence, and she almost falls off the balcony in much the same way that the second Mrs. Crane suffered a sudden bout of vertigo after a psychic attack by the house and did fall down the stairs. But Markway arrives just in time to pull her back in a scene that's staged very much like a romantic embrace. Markway suggests that maybe she needs to go home if she's that vulnerable to the house's influence, but of course she doesn't really have anywhere to go. She pleads with him to be allowed to stay, and he admits that he's got a selfish desire to keep her close. But just as she's getting her hopes up, he explains that the house's focus seems to be on her, and he wants to get some impressive results for his experiment. She's clearly crushed, even though she doesn't admit it. The others arrive, and Markway recommends that Eleanor and Theo spend the night together as a precaution. And man, if there was ever a point where audiences could miss the lesbian subtext of this movie, it stops here, as Theo says, well, you're the doctor, and practically drags Nell out of the room arm in arm while saying they'll have fun together. Like, sisters, of course. We then cut to the two of them, painting their toenails together and giggling under the influence of alcohol, Eleanor's first time drinking. 
It's an obvious lesbian seduction scene, albeit from an era where plying someone with drink to relax their inhibitions was seen as a normal part of courtship and not a gross prelude to sexual assault. The two of them discuss their lives outside of Hill House, and Theo mentions having an unmarried partner who helped her decorate their apartment with items scavenged from junk shops. There was apparently a scene intended to open the film where Theo broke up with her partner, explaining why she suddenly wanted a change of scenery to Hill House and why she's so interested in Eleanor, but this was vetoed as being a little too unsubtle to get past the Hayes office in 1963. Although they apparently missed the moment where Eleanor leans into a perfect kissing distance and gazes longingly at Theo. Jesus, this scene is smoldering by the standards of the era, and I suspect it was responsible for the sexual awakening of at least a few gay women. Eleanor, in turn, gives a description of her apartment that's obviously more aspirational than true, which pings Theo's ESP and her bullshit detector at the same time. She needles Eleanor a bit, hoping to get her to drop the pretenses and be honest about her situation, but instead Eleanor gets angry and defensive over what she sees as Theo's hot and cold attitude. She says she just wants to stay in Hill House forever, and we can just go ahead and add Stephen King's The Shining to the very long list of works inspired by this novel and its movie adaptation. Before the fight can get any more serious, everyone's called out into the hall by Merkway, who's discovered a cold spot right in front of what he calls the heart of Hill House, the nursery where Abigail lived and died. Luke figures there's probably a draft somewhere, which is unfortunately the actual explanation for most of the unexplained cold spots attributed to haunting in otherwise warm houses, but this one is cold enough to make people's breath show. Sometimes. And I think it would have been more convincing if that was more consistent. As it was, they relied on a few process shots and a special makeup that only showed up under certain colors of lighting, so the actors got subtly paler when they walked through that area. I don't think it's quite enough to convince, especially not in a black-and-white movie, but then again, I'm not from 1963. Having shown them the spot to investigate tomorrow, Markway sends the women back to their rooms in a very paternalistic manner that Eleanor very clearly finds attractive and Theo very clearly finds annoying as all hell, and then he and Luke continue their argument over the cause of the phenomenon for a short, inconclusive while before they leave as well. Again, I'm not entirely sure whether we're supposed to find Markway smug and pretentious, or if that's just an artifact of writing an overconfident pseudo-intellectual with a lot of half-baked notions about the supernatural in an era where mansplaining was even more commonplace than it is now. But he definitely rubs me the wrong way. Back in their shared room, Eleanor and Theo resume their prickly conversation until Theo says, Why be mad at me? I don't think you killed your mother, which is both a clear sign of her ESP and a pretty good checkmark in favor of my interpretation that she's being deliberately confrontational in order to get Eleanor to confront her various traumas. It ends with Eleanor settling into a huffy sleep next to Theo in the large bed, and from here we get another one of the iconic scare sequences of the film. Because in the middle of the night, the noises resume again. A man's voice interspersed with a child's cries on the other side of the wood-paneled wall as Nell wakes up and hears them. She asks to hold Theo's hand, and the other woman silently grips it tightly just off-screen as Nell tries to hold back a scream, and the lighting shifts just enough to expose a set of knots and crenellations in the wall that look exactly like a human face. This is obviously production design work, but it's also a phenomenon known as face pareidolia, the tendency to see faces in everyday objects, and it's used here to immensely creepy effect. 
Eleanor sits in uncomfortable dread for a long moment, which is layered over with the internal monologue to a degree that's probably going to make modern audiences wince, before she finally shouts for the voices to stop, and sits up. Not in the bed next to Theo, but on the couch all the way across the room. Whose hand was I holding, she asks. And that is exactly the spirit of the sublime that Stephen King called terror in his wonderful book on the genre dance macabre. It's glorious precisely because of what it leaves to the imagination. And I think even if you're a person who gets bored with slow burn horror and wants more than just implication to scare you, you're probably going to admit that this was a pretty good scene. The next day, Marquay is taking notes on a harp that plays itself, not any specific notes, just a vibration of the strings that even he thinks probably has a natural cause of some sort, when Eleanor finds him. He's happy to mansplain what's happening to her, and again, this is a real problem with the movie if you want to go looking for it. Rather than ratcheting up the tension consistently, we get big amazing sequences of terror followed by a good five minutes of Markway doing his best to tell us all that there's nothing really to be frightened over, because until Columbus, people thought the world was flat after all. Which isn't even true. Columbus didn't suggest that the world was round, a belief that was already commonplace in 1492. He suggested that it was smaller than previously believed and the route to India would be shorter going east to west. Which isn't true, and if he hadn't discovered the West Indies, he and his crew would have starved to death. But I digress. As did Markway, but at least I'm accurate. Eleanor briefly brings up the question of whether it's all in her head, suggesting that maybe Markway and the others are delusions as well, Ginning's preferred notion as we know, and confesses to Markway that like the companion at Hill House, she too failed to respond to her charge on the night she died. Eleanor was exhausted and slept through her mother's knocking, but she spent two months dealing with the guilt of wondering whether she heard it, ignored it, and later forgot. Markway tells her to get over her martyr complex, which, dude, two months, that's not a long time to grieve, give her a break. But he also tells her that he thinks she's a good and kind person, which encourages Eleanor's crush and leads her to think, journeys end in lover's meeting, a quote from Twelfth Night that takes on a deeper and more ominous meaning in the novel, where Eleanor eventually comes to apply it to Hill House itself. The group finally convenes and goes into the nursery, which is decorated with the magnificently over-the-top banner over the doorway, Suffer the Children, repeated again and again in Gothic script. Which is, of course, a deliberate misreading of the line in scripture spoken by Jesus, Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. It's an archaic use of suffer, meaning tolerate. Jesus was telling his disciples that kids were just as welcome to talk to him as adults were, and they shouldn't keep them away from him. That hasn't stopped dozens, if not hundreds, of writers from making exactly this play on words. In the nursery, they find a creepy book on sin written and illustrated by Hugh Crane for his daughter Abigail's religious instructions, which is quite rightly taken by everyone as a sign of his abuse. Eleanor tells the disembodied crane that she hopes he rots in hell, and the angle of the shot is brilliantly staged to make it look like we're seeing it from Crane's perspective looking down on her from somewhere in the house. Theo tells her to stop, first calling her a bore, and then subtly needling her about her crush on Markway and her daydream department. 
Which, again, you can either take this as a sign of Theo's jealousy leading her to say cruel and thoughtless things, or as an attempt to deliberately provoke a confrontation so that Eleanor can find out what Theo must already know thanks to her ESP, Markway is married and Eleanor is doomed to disappointment. But instead, Eleanor storms out of the room in anger. And when Theo goes after her, Eleanor calls her unnatural and one of nature's mistakes, so it's clearly not just Theo who can find people's weak points and jab at them. But their conversation is interrupted by the arrival of Grace Markway, John's wife, who's there to warn him that he's attracted the attention of reporters and he's about to be the subject of mockery and disdain in the mainstream press over his experiments, which would presumably affect his academic career and thus Grace's socioeconomic standing, hence her concern. There's a very, very strong implication that the two of them are deeply estranged. She does not offer to sleep in his room, and his offer to sleep in hers is coldly rebuffed. But this was an era before no-fault divorce, so couples like this would have been a lot more commonplace. Eleanor is heartbroken, Theo does a little freelance I told you sewing, and when John refuses to leave the mansion, Grace decides to stay herself and insists on the hauntedest room in the house and Eleanor, in a moment of petty jealousy, mentions the nursery. She immediately thinks better of it and begs Grace not to sleep there, but all that does is harden Grace's contemptuous opinion of their credulity. They don't even realize that she bribed the Dudleys to get the gate key until she tells them. And speaking of keys, even though the nursery was locked, it somehow opened itself to let Grace Markway in. She settles in for the night, despite her husband's protests. And as I mentioned at the beginning, this is an interesting scene, because you're really not sure whether it would be more tense if something awful happens to her, or more tense if nothing does, and she walks away equally contemptuous of her husband as when she arrived. Eleanor, meanwhile, begins to fall under the influence of the house. Between Markway's rejection and the fight with Theo, Hill House is the only one that seems to truly want her, and she knows it. She gets caught up in her inner monologue so completely that she entirely misses the conversation around her, and Theo has to repeat that they're all going to sleep in the parlor tonight so that the house can't separate them and mess with their heads the way it has been. John and Luke will take turns patrolling in front of the nursery, because of course that can't be left to the women. But Luke feels the need for a late-night tipple and slips back into the parlor for a bottle of wine. The door slams itself shut behind him, waking the others, and then we get an effect that reminds me, oddly enough, a lot of Christopher Nolan's movie The Prestige. Because like the transported man trick in that movie, it's really stunning and effective, but it's done so casually that I don't think modern audiences will really appreciate just how clever it is. Basically, we begin to hear the same clomping and stomping noises of the first night, and then the door itself begins to flex inward, as if some tremendous force is deforming it from the outside. And the thing is, most people nowadays will think, oh, they molded a fake door out of thick rubber and painted it to look real, the same way they did the stunt in the original Nightmare on Elm Street. But in fact, it really is genuine wood. They laminated together thin panels of wood to make a thick but flexible sheet, and they pushed a log into it on the other side to make it bend and distort in a way that wood absolutely should not do. The effect is so convincing that when Luke drops his bottle of wine and says, Doc, I'll let you have the house cheap. You can readily believe that even the most skeptical of skeptics is convinced. Also, this wine bottle drop is replicated later in Evil Dead 2 almost precisely. Sam Raimi's a big fan of this movie. 
After a long, tense moment, the entity departs, heading for the nursery, and Markway flings open the door despite the danger to go after his wife. He doesn't notice Eleanor slipping out the other door, convinced there's no use fighting the power behind Hill House any longer. Eleanor stumbles her way through the house, accompanied by ominous creaking noises and what sounds like the galloping of horses, let's just put a pin in that for an episode or so, expecting to be taken at any moment. But when she goes to the nursery, she finds Grace missing instead. As Eleanor later puts it, she's taken my place. The group splits up to search for Grace, so concerned about her disappearance that they don't even notice Eleanor descending even deeper into what appears to be a kind of psychosis. She wanders back to the greenhouse and dances with an imaginary Hugh Crane, and by the time the others realize they've let the house deliberately split them up yet again, she's already heading to the library to climb the spiral staircase like the companion did all those years ago. And I like that this feels like the climax of the film, even though the rule of threes should tell us that since three people were killed by the house in three different ways, the second Mrs. Crane fell in much the same way Eleanor almost fell, the companion died at the top of the staircase Eleanor's climbing now, and the first Mrs. Crane died in a carriage accident on the ground, then it only makes sense for Eleanor to have to survive three attempts by the house to claim her. It's a very nice false finish to the film that works because we got such a nice, good look at that staircase earlier and can easily believe it's going to be the major final set piece. Also, speaking of amazing camera work, there's a moment here where Wise does a tracking shot up the spiral staircase, which was done by turning the railing into an improvised dolly track, letting it slide to the bottom and reversing the film. Wise's cinematographer was Davis Bolton, who also worked on the original Children of the Damned, The Frozen Dead, and It, not the 1990 It or the 2017 It, but an unrelated film from 1967 that was also not It, The Terror from Beyond Space. Horror movies have a lot of It's. The group finds her several turns up the rickety stairs, climbing as if in a trance, and when she refuses to stop, John goes after her despite the very real risk that the staircase won't bear both their weights. It's a sequence of almost unbearable tension, made so much worse because almost every shot is either a top-down or a bottom-up angle that emphasizes the seemingly unimaginable distance to fall, and again, the anamorphic lenses make it seem even further than it is. This'll damn near give you a fear of heights if you don't have one already. Markway pursues her all the way to the balcony at the top, which provides access to the attic, and there's a horrifying moment where you're convinced Eleanor is about to reenact her fellow companion's demise by falling over backwards from the very tip-top. But John pulls her away at the last moment and caresses her cheek in a way that can't be read as anything but romantic. She's saved and the music swells as though we're just about ready to head to the happy ending and roll credits. But just then, in one of the very few and very effective jump scares of the movie, the attic door opens to reveal Grace's dirt-smeared, terrified face for just a moment before closing again, and Eleanor lets out a startled scream. We get a long cut to black, and honestly, if the movie had ended there, it would still have been a pretty damn effective ending followed by the group down in Eleanor's room getting her things packed. John's decided that Eleanor's near death by suicide is enough evidence that she's uniquely vulnerable to the strain placed on her by Hill House and needs to leave for her own safety, and the others agree. But in the most truly tragic scene in the whole movie, their concern for her safety pretty much ends there. 
she outright tells them she has nowhere to stay and no support network of any kind, and their response is basically, yeah, but Hill House is worse than nothing, so, um, you'll figure it out, right? Anyway, we have to go look for Grace who Eleanor sees, and to some extent rightly as it turns out, as being held hostage by the house in exchange for her. They bring her out to the car, and while Luke is tasked with bringing her back to town, she insists on driving, as it is, after all, half hers. They don't fight too hard, needing to get back to the search for Grace, which just confirms Eleanor's feelings that only Hill House truly cares for her. And when Luke gets out for a moment to get the gate key from John, Eleanor speeds off in the car. She loses control, the wheel seemingly jerked out of her hands, and just as she realizes there's only one way to stay at Hill House forever, she collides with the very same tree that killed the first Mrs. Crane, and dies instantly. The others arrive just a little too late, and find Grace stumbling out of the woods almost as if by magic, almost as if she was being returned in exchange for Eleanor. The others assume Eleanor swerved to avoid Grace and hit the tree, but Grace insists that the car was already heading that way when she saw it. All they can do now is mourn, and in the case of Luke, threaten to burn the place down and sow the earth with salt. Theo, though, hopes that Eleanor will be happy in death in a way that she wasn't in life, held in the loving embrace of the house she wanted to stay in so badly. But as we hear the same monologue from the beginning, this time in Eleanor's voice, and this time with the final line, and we who walk here, walk alone, we have our answer. Eleanor is alone, forever. And if ghost stories are about letting go of the past traumas that haunt us, this is a chilling reminder that not everyone can escape their past. And will I hang on to this movie? Oh my goodness, yes. There are a few little dings here and there, mostly regarding the old-timey voiceover and Markway's frequent exposition dumps, although even there it's worth remembering that we're not so far removed from an era where every supernatural movie needed to be wrapped up in a tidy little bow as a dream or a hoax or an imaginary story. But this is such a triumph of direction that there's no way I can say enough wonderful things about it. This is a cornerstone of the genre, possibly even a cornerstone of film itself, and it's worth studying for that even if this style of slow burn psychological horror doesn't necessarily appeal to you. And if you want to talk about slow burn horror, Shirley Jackson, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. My watchlist on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror and hear episodes a week early, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, two episodes ago, on this quiet podcast, with this friendly host... Something happened. Something so frightening. Something so deadly. Something so evil. We prayed it would never happen again. But it is, in the form of Sam Raimi's masterpiece of horror, Evil Dead 2. See you then.